From Washington, D.C., this is the Korean American Perspectives, a new podcast presented to you by the Council of Korean Americans. Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives podcast, where we explore the triumphs and challenges of the Korean American experience and examine different sides of complex issues that shape our community. We thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to Season 2 of the Korean American Perspectives, a podcast by the Council of Korean Americans. My name is Abraham Kim, and I'll be the host for this podcast, which seeks to share the inspirational life stories of Korean American leaders and explore complex issues that shape this community. Today, we're pleased to interview Julia Park, founder of Relationship 365, a family and marriage counseling firm in Huntsville, Alabama. She works with people and organizations based on the research work of Dr. Brene Brown, a renowned author and scholar at the University of Houston, who has written extensively on vulnerability, courage, authenticity, and shame. Julia is a licensed marriage and family therapist who has worked with people from all walks of life, ethnicities, gender, and religious backgrounds. As you'll see from this interview, Julia talks about how Asians, and particularly Asian women, deal with perfectionism. She addresses the question of how perfectionism and shame are connected. She talks to us also on the importance of showing love for yourself, and never take at face value the first draft narratives about ourselves when bad things happen. These are stormy first drafts, as she calls it. Plus, we need to practice a little self-compassion. Finally, why is being vulnerable so important for our well-being, especially among Asian Americans? We'll be covering these issues and more. So without further ado, let's jump right into the interview. So welcome, Julia. Welcome to the, the Korean American Perspective. We're so excited to speak with you today um, and learn more about your life and, and the work that you're doing in mental health. Uh, let's start from the beginning. Um, share a little bit about your immigration story. Um, were you born here in the United States or, uh, or did you immigrate to the United States as a young child? Um, I, I wasn't born here. I was um, born in Korea. And, you know, when I was 12, so right after sixth grade, um, you know, we, we moved to the state. We moved to, um, to be near my mom's family because her family was in Boston. Mm-hmm. So um, we moved there initially just to learn English. And, you know, my parents were separated for three years. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, yeah, after three years, my dad was kind of like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> so um, he ended up moving to the state. And um, yeah, so um, it was definitely um, harder for me because I have a younger sibling and he's three years younger than me. So he was, it was a lot easier for him to make friends and 
um, adjust to the new lifestyle. And for me, you know, right after sixth grade, the preteen years, it was, it was, it was a struggle. I remember, um, like every morning, like I really didn't want to go to school. I was really, um, having a really hard time, but I mean, my mom was a single parent at the time, you know, cause they were separated. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to add that pressure to her. So I remember just kind of, you know, holding all that, you know, to myself and feeling that pressure of being an old, you know, the older, you know, um, older sister having to play multiple roles. Like, um, I was like my mom's partner. Um, you know, when my mom was in at home and she was working, I would have to take care of my brother at the same time, struggling at school. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a really rough time. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. At, at the time you didn't speak English either. No, not at all. I yeah. So, so it was early nineties. So that's when, you know, um, like I didn't learn English. Um, so in early 90s nobody you know now like they're teaching english in like you know when kids are really little mm-hmm. but at the time it wasn't it wasn't very common so i spoke no english when i first yeah were you the were you the only asian kid a child in in your school or was it a predominantly white school that you went to yeah predominantly white and i had a couple cousins but um they had their own friends and cliques so this feeling kind of, I didn't want to be in their way, you know, I didn't want to bother them. So yeah, it was predominantly white. So share with me about uh, just uh, how was it when maybe when your father finally came, did your life change? Did your family life change uh, when he arrived? Oh, absolutely. I think um, like while um, they were separated, it was really, um, I mean, obviously, it was really hard not having a father for three years. And when he finally decided to come and live with us, I was so thrilled mm-hmm. that, like, I was trying to do whatever I can to, you know, hold on to that family unit. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't want to. Um, I, I remember just being really excited and thrilled. And at the same time, like, um, I don't want, I don't want to go back to that. You know, I really have to do whatever I need to do to, you know, um, make this work for, mm. for our family. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting that you as a child, uh, trying to have this, I guess, burden, uh, or this responsibility of trying to, uh, create this, I guess, bonding within your family and, and this, this as a as the older child oldest child i think maybe a lot of elder children feel that way i felt the same way too in in some ways and so um so so did you live uh most of your childhood in the boston area is that where you spent most of your upbringing yeah mostly mostly over there yeah okay and and then from from high school um how was your adjustment in high school? I mean, you came as a, a middle schooler and yeah. you it was a tough transition, but how was your high school years? It was like, I, after my father came, I remember feeling a little bit more stable, mm-hmm. you know, and my English was getting better and things were getting better. But 
at the same time, I think my parents wanted to just kind of break away from my mom's side of the family, just kind of start fresh. So I moved, we moved again. So we relocated to um, Alabama. I see. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so that's like a whole, like, you know, um, it's like, it was a culture shock coming from, you know, um, like I was really well adjusted. I had a lot of friends there finally feeling like I fit in and then having to, you know, move to the South. And I remember my mom, you know, told me to call the bank and, you know, set up their account. And I was on the phone and I had no idea what the other person was saying, you know, on the phone. Because mm-hmm. um, I wasn't accustomed to that, um, the different accent. And it was a, it was a really... Um, like kind of starting all over again. Yeah. So yeah. How, was, how was it as a, a Korean American living in Alabama where you, I imagine you were the, one of the few Asian families where you moved to, correct? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, oof, it, it was really um, challenging for me. It, it really felt like starting all over again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, it wasn't as inclusive as, um, as it was in Boston. Mm-hmm. So um, just kind of feeling really puzzled and not understanding like, you know, what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, a, it was a really big adjustment for me. Yeah, and your parents moved there because of work? I mean, obviously you had mentioned about your moving away from the family, but was your father uh, had a new job in the Alabama area? Yeah, so he ultimately started working for the Korean company LG. Okay. Yeah. Ultimately, he started working at LG, but before then, they wanted to start a new business, and they came, and it didn't work out. And my mom tried to open a restaurant, and mm-hmm. you know, and I was helping out. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it was just us trying to survive. You know, make it make it work. Mm. And, and and from there you went to college and yeah, uh, where yeah. did you and you went to college um uh-huh so i went to auburn so mm-hmm. it's in alabama yeah. um and i went to auburn partly because i wanted to stay near my my family i see and it's four like it's about four hours away from my parents mm-hmm. and i remember you know Freshman year, you, you want to enjoy your, you know, college life. And I remember driving home every, every week, mm-hmm. you know, so I would like come, you know, um, get in the car, you know, Friday afternoon, right after class. And I would drive four hours and come home and spend time with family. And on Sunday, I would drive back to school, mm-hmm. you know. So looking back, like I kind of see like the, the pattern but at the time, I just, you know, I, I had no awareness why, why I was doing that. Mm-hmm. I think looking back, I did it because I think that three-year period when my parents were separated, it was very traumatic looking mm-hmm. back, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So subconsciously, I was always trying to um, stay near them and gave me that certain like level of control, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, wow. So, so that that separation in your family, your early years, uh, really shaped your adult life as well as you're getting older and older. Uh, so, 
could you share with me how your upbringing, your immigration experience uh, influenced who you are today as a person uh, and as a leader? And I think, um, hmm. <sighs> I mean, I think it kind of tells, tells you why I chose this profession, you know, marriage and family therapy. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't think I, you know, went to college and thinking that I'm going to be a therapist or a counselor, you know, but, um, you know, I just kept trying to focus on what, what was, um, the, the things that I was kind of questioning myself, like, what does it mean to, um, be married, you know, and, um, started like having more interest in that. And just one thing led to another and I ended up, you know, doing what I'm doing and trying to, um, I understand the struggle of of a uh, um, immigrant family, mm-hmm. where the roles are all enmeshed and you know mumbo jumbo. Um, so just being a little bit more sensitive to um, to people mm-hmm. and what they're going through, especially coming from you know coming from Korea or a different country, and how hard it is to make it work you know and um like we talked about how being the oldest or um we're just putting so much pressure on ourselves Mm -hmm. i just wish that if if my parents um knew that there were resources and if they took me to a counselor or therapist where i could have a safe space to talk about like geez i'm having a lot of anxiety and you know, I'm having a really hard time. I'm putting a lot of pressure on myself. And somebody told me that, you know, that is not your responsibility to keep your family together or keep your parents' marriage, you know, intact. Mm-hmm. I, I just wish looking back, somebody, you know, um, gave me that opportunity to um, have, have that talk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So did you know from your college years that you would be a go into the, uh, the field of marriage and counsel, uh, marriage therapy and counseling. Uh, were you a psychology major when you went to Auburn? No, no, no. no. Um, so, you know, very stereotypically, I, I was good at two things when I came to the state, I was good at math and I was good at music. <laughs> Because I took piano lessons when I was little and I grew up in church and I was in choir and, you know, um, so I I really wanted to major in music. And obviously, to my dad especially, it wasn't acceptable, right? Because he made this total shift. He left everything he had in Korea and, you know, I remember him telling me that you're good, but you're not good enough Mm -hmm. to make it. You know, and um, so I wanted to study music, but I wanted to make, you know, make my parents happy and thinking that if I make them happy somehow, you know, um, you know, we can have a happy family, I guess. Right. Mm -hmm. So I studied, um, I was pre-med and, but on the side, secretly, I was taking piano lessons and minoring in piano. And, um, you know, after, after college, I had to make the decision, like, what am I going to do? Am I going to go to the med school or what are we going to do? And 
I started um, talking to a friend in Korea who asked me about, um, she wanted to come to the state and study music therapy. So I thought there was a cool combination, you know, the science and music. Mm -hmm. So without telling my father, I went into music therapy. And um, I wanted to work with kids with, you know, kids um, with autism and Asperger's. And I know music has, you know, um, it just helps them so much with, you know, being able to express themselves. And, you know, um, you just see like a whole, like another side of them. And I just fell in love with that work. And then as I was working with them, I realized that, you know, it's really about working with the family because mm -hmm. when there's a one child with special needs, right? right? Mm -hmm. It's not about treating the, that, that one person, one child, you know, that impacts the entire family. Mm -hmm. So I thought, you know, heck, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go into, go back to school and um, initially wanting to like, you know, do music therapy with autistic children and mm -hmm. wanting to help the family. So, yeah. But then that awareness, like why I had, I had chosen certain, you know, um, paths or my journey, just it, that awareness came in later when I was doing my, you know, personal therapy. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. So, so after college, uh, you went, back to grad school to study uh, yeah. music, music therapy as your kind of focus of research. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. um, so how did, how did you get involved with Brene Brown's work? Uh, is that something that came that you encountered as you were going through grad school and, and you came across her research? Um, I think we talked about it last time about mm -hmm. her Ted talk. Yes. So, um, you know, she has a TED talk on vulnerability and shame and, you know, somebody recommended me to listen to it and I did, and it was really mind blowing. I never mm -hmm. thought that vulnerability can be, um, like a powerful tool, mm -hmm. um, for connection. Yeah. I always, I was taught not to show vulnerability. Right. So, um, I was introduced to her work. Um, and I was just kind of, um, it was a really shock for me when I, when I listened to her TED talk and thinking that, oh my gosh, like, you know, this is completely different from what I've been, what I've been taught, what mm -hmm. I've been conditioned to. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. How, how has, um, I guess, encountering her work uh, changed you personally, uh, as well as, especially as you're, as you shared with us about your family life but also how's it shaped you personally, your family life, uh, and also your, in your professional life? Mm -hmm. um, and we talked briefly in the beginning about offloading her strategies. Yes. So that's when we don't sit with like difficult emotions, mm -hmm. right? We don't know how to um, get curious about it. We don't want to um, sit with it. So we just end up, offloading that onto someone else. And um, I mean, growing up, I, I personally saw a lot, of, a lot of that from my parents and I, I started recognizing that I do that too, you know? 
and there was one um, something that Brune taught me during training was um, called SFD. So it stands for Stormy First Draft. So whenever, <laughs> so we we all make up a story, you know, when something happens, right? And whenever we make up that story, our brain rewards us for creating a story because by having that story, it kind of protects us, right? Then we know what to do when, you know, something, something bad happens. But unfortunately, first drafts are not always true. It's just something that we make up to protect ourselves, mm-hmm. right? So, um, you know, my husband, Matt, which you know, and I, after learning about that, you know, whenever we get into like it's this really tense place, um, we started saying, you know, like, what's your SFD? Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, my my first, you know, first stormy draft is and it's supposed to be um, very childish. It's supposed to be possibly unshareable. It's supposed to be embarrassing. So kind of giving each other that permission mm-hmm. that like first draft is supposed to be really like terrible, mm-hmm. but you know, because I care about you, I'm willing to listen to your story and not judge you, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. that that's vulnerable. That's mm-hmm. very vulnerable because, you know, it's a risk that you're taking, you know, mm-hmm. vulnerability is taking risk and there's uncertainty, a level of uncertainty, not knowing how the other person's going to respond to that, you know, Mm-hmm. And emotional exposure, like I'm exposing myself and feeling super vulnerable. Mm-hmm. But it's just in my personal relationship, in my marriage, which I, for me, it's the most important thing, you know, um, like I'm, I'm practicing that. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that I was taught. You know, I've, I've, I've seen my parents doing, you know, offloading hurt. Right. So, um Yeah, it, it definitely changed my um, myself, my relationships with my, my family and my husband and my, my daughter and my friends. Mm-hmm. Just giving that person that permission to, you know, share their first draft. Yeah. So um, how about in your parenting? Has it, has it changed your parenting in terms of how you relate to your child? Um, definitely. Um, I think, wow, I think women, Asian women um, especially, deal with perfectionism, right? Mm-hmm. And people don't know that perfectionism comes from shame. Shame is the root of perfectionism. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that either. So I kind of um, use that as like, you know, like I'm a perfectionist and but I'm being really hard on myself. I'm being really hard on other people, right? And with parenting too, I mean, there are so many moments where, you know, I would have a lot of shame about not being the perfect parent. Like for example, you know, if I blew up on my daughter, if she did something, like if she made a mess or um, like I missed like, you know, um, parent-teacher meeting, or um, I'm working a lot and I feel like I'm not spending enough time with her, 
you know, it just brings up a lot of shame and, and, um, like going through Brené's work, I realized that, you know, no matter how much I get done at the end of the day, it doesn't change how much I love my daughter. You know, it doesn't change that I am a good mother. I might not be perfect, mm -hmm. but it doesn't change the fact that, you know, I care about her and I'm trying my best. Mm -hmm. So instead of beating myself up, you know. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I think, uh, as a parent myself, I completely understand, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but understanding, I mean, I guess as a father, uh, go through similar kinds of emotions as, as, as well. Um, um, I mean, since we're on the topic of shame, uh, and Brene Brown's work, could you share with us a little bit about the difference between shame and guilt and how they're different? Mm -hmm. So shame is focusing on the person, on self, and guilt is focusing on behavior. So I, after learning that, I started catching myself how often I use shame. You know, if I fail um, or if I make a mistake, you know, instead of saying that, you know, um, you made a mistake, I would, you know, sometimes tell myself, you, you are, you're such a failure. You know, like if I, um, like for me, you know, if, if I made certain goal and I didn't reach that goal, you know, instead of saying that, oh, I could have done this better and trying to focus on the behavior, you know, like I've been like telling myself that I am a disappointment. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a failure thinking that that was a motivator, but it wasn't. And shame makes you feel lonely because when you're telling yourself that, you know, um, you're, a, you're a mistake, you're a disappointment, then what happens is that um, we don't want to make connection with other people when we're, you know, feeling bad. And we isolate, you know? So I remember, I mean, dealing with perfectionism and catching myself using a lot of shame language and I, I noticed that, you know, um, I would, whenever I felt that way, instead of, you know, reaching out to other people and talking about it, like, are you struggling with that too? And trying to um, gain some empathy or working on self-compassion, I would just kind of, um, you know, uh, isolate myself and, and cave in and suffer silently. Mm, mm. So... Um how do most people, especially Asian Americans, Korean Americans for that matter, respond to shame? Culturally, mm -hmm. Asian Americans um, stockpile. It's mm -hmm. one of the offloading strategies, offloading her strategies, mm -hmm. that you let things just like um, pile up on top of each other to the point where you're having like um, physical manifestation of psychological and emotional distress mm. and I personally um, in the past in college deal I deal with a lot of indigestion and um, looking back it was I had a lot of you know um, anxiety and panic attacks before a really important exam but 
um, or really bad headache, migraine, and I don't know why I'm having this really intense migraine and headache. So I felt a lot of um, like physical manifestation of my emotional and you know psychological stress. And I think um, and the research shows that Asian Americans tend to do that. Hmm. It's there's so much shame in having emotional and psychological stress mm -hmm. you know they think that you know you should be able to get over it with willpower you know or something mm -hmm. <laughs> um. <laughs> so I, i'm sure you uh, um, a, a many a lot of your patients are are asian uh, asian americans and uh, I, I mean how if you do experience these kinds of shame or you you see one of your patients uh, stockpiling i mean how do how do we how do we as an individual if if I'm realizing I'm I'm experiencing this, how do I deal with it? What do you what would you suggest? Mm -hmm. So a lot of people come um, to therapy mm -hmm. because their doctor um, told them that I don't see anything wrong with you, right? Like the mm -hmm. test results and everything comes back normal and. You know, you might want to go talk to somebody, so they end up coming to, you know, therapy office. <laughs> so I think they're kind of aware of that. But um, the opposite of shame is empathy. Mm. Empathy is um, being able to connect to somebody else's, you know, feelings. So I might not, um, like for example, if somebody is dealing with death in the family or um, illness, you know, I might not have somebody in my family who's dealing with that, but I can connect to the feelings, you know, I can connect to the fear. I can connect to, you know, feeling lonely, mm -hmm. feeling um, overwhelmed and out of control. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, empathy is antidote to shame. And I think I can be that, person to empathize with people who are struggling at the same time you can't have um a therapist and counselor 24 7 and they're not you know they're not available all the time and there's a new concept that i recently was exposed to um kristen neff at ut austin started studying self um self-compassion versus self-esteem and self-compassion is always there for you. It's not about like spoiling yourself. It's about when we're struggling, when things are really bad, how do you relate to yourself, right? So kind of teaching myself how to be my own therapist when I'm struggling. You know, I, she has a son who has um, autism and her husband wrote a book called horse boy and I remember reading it um, and she shared about you know one time they were flying to England to see you know her son's grandparents and her son had a total meltdown you know on the plane and obviously he looks normal outside but people are like talking and making like you know gestures like so annoyed and why isn't this mom doing anything about it and her feeling this rush of shame. And um, she quickly took her son and she tried to tame him somehow 
try to um, comfort him in the bathroom and the bathroom was locked. It, it was already occupied. And she was just kind of um, in a shock, like, I don't know what to do with it. And she remembered that, you know, I can use self-compassion here. And she started talking to herself, like, you know, Kirsten, this is really hard. You know, I know you're having really hard time, but this is gonna pass, it's not forever. And the moment she started like kind of coaching herself, you know, being very compassionate, like, like understanding your pain and suffering and acknowledging that, she noticed that herself like talking to her son, like, you know, Roland, it's okay. I know you're struggling. I know you're having a hard time. We'll get through it, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, self-compassion is something that I recently um, learned. And it's something that I, I started teaching my clients that, you know, it's great that we, we talk about this in our office, but I really want you to practice this outside. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever you have that shame talk, you know, we have this exercise where you have to write it down and then kind of convert that into um, using self-compassion. And mm-hmm. how would you convert that from shame to um, self-compassion? Mm-hmm. Is that, is uh, shame, compa- self-compassion, is that, uh, I'm assuming that's a little bit different from shame resilience. Uh, I know we've talked a little bit about uh, shame resilience is that another tool or is that similar to uh, what you're talking about here yeah um that's a great question um shame resilience is about like speaking out because shame grows when you add three things secrecy silence and judgment hmm. so shame resilient people from Brunet's research she noticed that they're very critically aware and mindful when it happens, you know, they, they try to sit with it and feel it, right? Get curious about it. And then you have to reach out, not just to anybody, but, you know, people that you trust and you have to talk about it, right? And I think self-compassion is something um, like that exercise that I was talking about. It's about talking to yourself and being able to be your own therapist and changing that dialogue into something that's more um, compassionate. Mm-hmm. Um, so for example, you know, a lot of people have anxiety, panic attacks in the middle of the night because there's nothing for us to um, you know, distract ourselves with at night things are quieter and you know a lot of i know asian americans they're very hard workers and you know like you don't really have anything to distract yourself with anymore and um that's when that shame you know Brene brown calls it gremlin that voice comes in and telling you things like you're, you're unworthy you're not good enough and you know those terrible things and kind of coaching my clients that write it down and just look at it and see how terrible it sounds. Would you ever tell this to your, you know, your somebody that you really care about, your friend who's struggling? Mm, yeah. Mm. So now, you, let's change that. Yeah. So do you see shame manifest differently between men and women and, and how they go about handling the shame? 
different between men and women or is it, is it similar between both genders? The, the way um, it feels, um, it's the same. We have that rush of shame. We feel it physically, right? And immediately we want to just shut it down, right? But the triggers are different. The triggers for women are about, like, I have to do everything perfectly, you know, and not show that I'm struggling. I have to look like, you know, I'm doing all, all these, all of these, and I'm not even, you know, sweating. I, I, I can just, you know, magically. Um, like superwoman, right? Superwoman, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and for, for men, they don't struggle with that. They don't feel that pressure to, um, that pressure intensely as women. But it's really about um, not appearing weak. There's a lot of shame um, about um, not feeling like I can handle this. I can't kick, you know, I can't kick, you know. Kick butt. I can kick ass. <laughs> kick butt. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, like being emotional, it's, it's a sign of for men, they see that as weakness, hmm. right? Um, or when they're going through marital issues, it's a shame. You should be able to kick, you know, kick bud or not making enough money for the family. Right. That, that shows that you're, you're weak, right? You, you can't handle this. Yeah. You should be, you should be able to kick butt and not show that you're, um, emotional, not showing that you're, you're feeling sad or, but it's more for men it's more acceptable in the society, probably not from your wives and children, but from um, our society, um, anger is more normalized than being vulnerable. Hmm. So do you, do you see, I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting point. So do you f see a lot of people maybe manifesting itself in terms of this, this underlying shape, but it manifests itself as anger, as, as rage or, uh, or as just this feeling of resentment that they're maybe perhaps for men, they're not providing for their family or they feel like they're not providing stability. So they feel resentment for the conditions that they're under. And that would create, I guess, stress in their lives or for women that they don't have, this level of control over their ent entire universe, right? And so it comes out as anger. Um, is that is that what you see in your uh, as you're talking with uh, people who are facing these kinds of challenges? Mm -hmm. I think you just summarized it beautifully. Mm -hmm. um, so anger is a secondary emotion. A lot of times, so. One of the things that I, I do with my patients, my clients, is that um, we try to look at what's underneath the anger. So anger, if you see an iceberg, on the tip of the iceberg, what you see on the surface, mm -hmm. it's just very little. Mm -hmm. But let's say that's anger. But underneath the water, there is a, this huge um, mass. And kind of uncovering like, hey, what's underneath anger? Is there, you mentioned about 
resentment, you know, um, grief, um, disappointment, disappointment in, in myself, perhaps, you know. But if you think about it, when we are able to get in touch with our primary emotion, it's a lot easier to connect with other people than anger. Like growing up, I never understood when my dad, when he would get angry, you know, but um, I didn't know why he was angry, right? And he probably wasn't taught how to go underneath the water and explore like, hey, what's really there? I know he lost his dad when he was um, in college and he had to take care of his mom and his sister and you know, feeling like he um, had to take care of all these people when he's just, a, you know, this young adult and he doesn't know what he's doing. And I'm just guessing that there was a lot of um, grief and disappointment and sadness, but, you know, he wasn't allowed to talk about that culturally. So all you see is anger. Hmm. So it's, it's all about uncovering what's, what's really there. Mm. So if you did see maybe a spouse or a friend or a partner or, or a loved one uh, kind of experiencing this, I mean, um, how, what would you recommend and how we would respond to, just to help them, I guess, uh, get in touch with some of these uh, things that we've talked about? Would you? Would you? I don't think there is um, the right plat platform for people to um, talk about this, you know, unless you're in in a, in, a, in therapy and you know in a, in a safe like space. Unfortunately, the things that we're talking about, people don't know. Mm. Yeah, so they see vulnerability like myself in the past, see that as, as weakness. But don't show it. Don't, what, don't share those primary, more vulnerable feelings. Hide it. So mm. unfortunately, I think that's like homework. That's a big um, like homework for, for us to um, figure out and just kind of like what you're doing, spreading that awareness mm -hmm. that vulnerability is not weakness. Mm. Yeah, especially in a, in a very intimate relationship. So I think, unfortunately, I don't, I don't think people are aware of that. And because of that, they're not, you know, comfortable with sharing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think... Like you said, I mean, growing up, obviously growing up in a Korean American family, um, any kind of vulnerability is a sign of weakness. And, and our, we've often been taught, you know, get over it, you know, dry your tears and, you know, just uh, <laughs> try harder, yeah. right? Try harder. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but uh, not allowing to grieve when we're hurt, mm -hmm. uh, not allowing to speak your feelings when, you know, you feel... Uh, hurt or violated in some way or or even just uh, 
you know, being able to, um, you know, just connecting with people when you need, when you need uh, you know, help. Right. And so uh, those kinds of, um, yeah, I think in many ways, what, what we were taught was not good. It was actually the things that we actually needed. Right. And so to really deal with uh, some of these issues. Uh, um, yeah. I mean, I, just coming back to kind of the Asian cultures that, you know, both you and I have lived in, um, uh, you know, there seems to be a struggle between, uh, you know, one of the questions and one of the things that I see is there's a struggle between who we are versus what we're supposed to be. Right. And there's that, uh, what we've just talked about is like, we're supposed to be strong. We're supposed to be resilient. We're supposed to be, you know, being able to conquer anything, you know, Right. And right. and as the Koreans say, you know, hamyeon denda. You know, just if you just do it, yeah. it'll happen, right? Um, uh, can you share me uh, some of your thoughts on that? On that kind of that culture that you see within the Asian American communities? It's really bad. <laughs> it's really bad. Um, and that's just um, so dismissive and disapproving of of your experience, mm. you know? And going back to that rage, you know, anger issue that, you know, the research shows, you know, men typically, they have a really hard time with not knowing how to manage that because culturally that's the only, you know, I mean, it's not good, but it's more acceptable than vulnerability, right? And there was a really interesting research and um, there's a neuroscientist, Dan Siegel. He talks about how whenever we are able to name, you know, the primary, you know, emotions, what happens is it, you know, that requires us to use the pre, you know, pre um, frontal cortex, part of the brain, the thinking brain. And it's supposed to, um, help us manage manage feelings difficult emotion he calls it name it to tame it so um i'm going back to your question about um the struggle between what we're supposed to be versus you know who we are um brene brown talks about wholehearted living and wholehearted is embracing good and bad so it's about integrating both and i think by not integrating both good and bad you're not being your yourself you're being a version of yourself, but you're not fully embracing who, who we are, who you are. And if you, if we can't do that, then we can't really, you know, I, I don't, I don't think there, um, for me, that was a block for me. Yeah. Focusing on perfectionism and focusing on who I'm supposed to be. And I remember um, my personal therapy work, my therapist was listening in the beginning and I would go into her office thinking like, you know, like 
um, I started seeing no point in this. I'm just talking and, um, but at this, at the time she was listening and trying to collect data and she, you know, one day she asked me, Julia, what's your definition of success? And I remember there was a, that was a pivotal like moment for me because I, I couldn't, I couldn't answer that question. And I said, well, I guess whatever my mom or my dad, whatever they uh, want, want me to be, I don't know. Because hmm. I wasn't embracing, you know, my strength and my vulnerable, vulnerable sides. I wasn't embracing both of it. And I wasn't living on the wholehearted living, you know? Um, so I think, I think, you know, at our conference at, um, in November, I remember listening to a lot of people share their personal stories. And these people are very successful, obviously, including yourself. And noticing that at one point in their lives, in one point in their career, they all had that question, you know? And I've been doing what I was told to do, but then there was that pivotal moment where, you know, um, they were able to kind of um, integrate both and become who they are. Hmm. Hmm. Not being very authentic, being like knowing yourself fully, so um, last a couple of questions. Uh, one is if you uh, wish one thing uh, that the Korean American community would do better, uh, especially, um, you know, 1.5 second generation, what would that be to change, I guess, our culture and our, uh, our frame of reference in terms of um, some of the issues that we've been talking about related to shame and, uh, and, and uh, coming in touch with our, you know, our feelings and our emotions. It's hard because I got to narrow it down to one. <laughs> you can um, do two or three. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just want to end with this story that I, I really resonated with. Um, because of the stage I'm in, I'm a, I'm a parent of a um, young child. And, you know, we all want to give them what we didn't have. For me, um, I really want to teach her how to be able to, to um, not use that shame language. So I remember there was a story that Brene Brown shared when her daughter um, was in class. And I guess, you know, she was really young and they were doing some kind of art project and making a lot of mess, you know, playing with glitters and um, things like that. And the teacher told Ellen that, Ellen, you're a mess. And Ellen looked her up and she said, um, I might be making mess, but I'm not a mess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
it, it took her mother's uh, research <laughs> to heart. <laughs> oh, wonderful. So yeah. what, one final question. Um, if you could speak to your 18-year-old self, um, what would you advise your 18-year-old self? Um, I would tell my 18-year-old self that you are, you are enough. You're enough and um, you're still worthy of belonging and, and, and love and you're worthy. Hmm. You don't have to be perfect. Yeah. Well, Julia, you're amazing and your work is amazing. And uh, thank you very much for sharing your life and uh, what you've learned in your life's journey and, uh, and being an inspiration. So we appreciate the time you shared with us today. Thank you, Julia. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Julia Park. Julia dug deeply on issues that we rarely talk about as a community, such as shame, vulnerability, courage, and perfectionism. One of my favorite parts of this interview is, is the particular challenge that she gave to Korean American families. Specifically, well, growing up in a Korean American family, vulnerability is seen as a weakness. Well, we need to unlearn that and come to terms with vulnerability and be able to address our issues with openness. If you like this conversation about mental health in the Korean American community, you'll like some of our future episodes with people like sports psychologist Matt Park and family counselor and executive coach Jeannie Chang. I hope you tune in. Well, thank you again for listening to this episode of our second season of the Korean American Perspectives. We have a lot more interviews to showcase, so please subscribe to our podcast and visit our website at councilka.org for more interviews episodes, show notes, and more. We welcome your thoughts and feedback on our social media channels on Facebook and LinkedIn, or feel free to send us an email at podcast at councilka.org. Well, thank you again, and hope you tune in next time for the Korean American Perspectives. Thank you for tuning into the Korean American Perspectives podcast. Head over to councilka.org for the show notes of this episode and see exciting upcoming programs at CKA. That's councilka.org.